0: welcome to the art informant my name is isabel amber and i'll be your host i have been working and breathing islamic and indian art history for more than a decade how do you breathe art history you ask listen to this podcast to find out In today's episode, I welcome Daniel Newman, professor of Arabic at the University of Durham. Daniel is passionate about medieval Arab cooking and has been experimenting with recipes for many years. He has recreated more than 200 recipes from forgotten medieval books, including Garden Flowers in Elegant Food, of 15th century Egyptian compiler Ibn Mubaraksha. In the episode, we talk about the work of a translator, the importance of experimentation in the editing process, as well as many ingredients I had never heard of. As always, illustrations and links to additional information are available below the episode. Daniel Newman, welcome to the Art Informant podcast. I am so happy to have you on the episode today. Uh, We are going to talk about... Uh, One of your many specialties, actually, but uh, this one I'm very excited about. We're going to talk about food and we're going to talk about medieval food. Um, You've been working on this topic for many years, Uh, you've published on that topic, and we're going to talk about that. You are preparing a publication to come next year as well on that very topic, so we have lots to discuss. Welcome, and let's jump right in!
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. So, all right, let's start with uh, a bit about you. What brought you to the study of Arabic language and literature?
1: Um, It's so long ago (laughs) that I've forgotten. (laughs) Um, Essentially, I I was one of these nerdish uh, children that had a a great interest in in history uh, as well as languages. Um, And um, my earliest interest in in history was actually in uh, Greek and Roman antiquity. And uh, then I I strayed into Egyptology. And at one point, I I was actually, it was a a toss up almost between doing perhaps classics or um, Egyptology. I I went with the latter, but very soon, um, because it was also Arabic as part of the degree, and very soon it actually dawned on me that I, I liked Arabic much more. And then I went to the Arab world. I went to Egypt. And of course, in a way, it was to see all of those things that I'd read about as a child but i found actually that modern egypt interested me far more and so this really lit a fire uh, in me a fire that uh, that has continued to to this day um for arabic arab arab culture literature and and so on and uh, that's a path that that i continued and as i say it's it's really been a very passionate journey and one that has greatly enriched my life.
0: That is so interesting because I know someone else who had a similar path than you. So I wonder if there is something with specialists of Egypt that they start with ancient Egypt and they realize that actually uh, modern uh, Egypt is more interesting. There is There is something there. Um, I will start a, I will start a studio now. <laughs> right. uh.
1: Let me know the outcome. Uh, yeah uh, there, there may be indeed so you know one always thinks that uh, one is alone in this, but but who knows there may be other, <laughs> other individuals with such inclinations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then what made you take an interest in the history of cooking?
1: well that's that's another journey within the journey because obviously when when you travel you take turns you come at a junction and you 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 branch off and you you rejoin the main the main road and you swerve off again such as is life for everybody but um cooking food has been an interest of mine um for many many years um but in in terms of the the history of cooking, that actually came through an interest in Islamic medicine, Islamic medicine, particularly pharmacology, and as you can see, there's a kind of link with of course antiquity yes so because you you of course once you you go into that field, you invariably um have to discuss the links between. Islamic medicine and and Greek medicine and of Absolutely. course here I'm I'm thinking of people like Galen but also in terms of pharmacology of course Dioscorides yes but that that it, we have to go back one more step because that grew out of an interest in translation and the translation movement the medieval translation movement of course of Greek scientific texts many of them medical among them the people that I've just mentioned, into Arabic. And so when you study Islamic medicine, um, or perhaps I should say Arabic medicine, in terms of medical text written in Arabic, regardless of the ethnicity and backgrounds of the authors, you find that uh, food, of course, is at the very heart of it, just as food is at the heart of the Galenic system, the humoral system. It's, it's a wonderfully holistic system that relies on equilibrium in the body, the temperament. And of course, you achieve that or you fail to achieve that through food. Uh, eating the right food makes you healthy. Eating the wrong food causes illness. Mm-hmm. So it um, was the the first the first step. Uh, so the translation movement, Islamic medicine, Arabic medicine, uh, and food, and of course uh, related to that was the discovery of a number of texts. Because for a very long time, Arabic food studies is a very recent phenomenon, if you think about it. Um yeah. so uh, between the nineteen thirties and the nineteen eighties, uh, there were very few editions of texts. Um there was one, a thirteenth century text that had been edited in the thirties and also translated uh, back then by uh, uh Arbury. Um and then of course there was Charles Perry who who, who did much of the early work. But those were mainly translations that, that he did. Um, and so I, I, I saw this body of literature and the more I delved into it, the more important it seemed to me. And the more interested I became in untangling this multitude of strands that connects all of these works and make Arabic culinary history so interesting it's it's the richest textual history food history uh, in the world oh really that is so interesting yes well in terms of in terms of um the middle ages because before that there's really only apicius as the recipe book the roman uh, uh, recipe book yeah uh we're we're talking fourth century or thereabouts There's a couple of isolated recipes in some uh, Mesopotamian uh, texts. Yeah. But in terms of of recipes, I mean, the Arabic culinary tradition boasts well over 4,000 recipes. And so from the 9th century up until the 13th century, uh, it was only Arabic texts. There were only Arabic recipe collections. Oh, wow. Nobody else, of course, going by the evidence that we have, yeah. nobody else was producing recipe books. And then, of course, in the 13th century and beyond, then, of course, in Europe, we have collections, recipe collections that start, well, the early ones, of course, in Catalan, mm-hmm. uh, we have them in Italy, France, and then England, and, and so on and so forth.
0: And uh, do you think that there is... um? An influence in the practice of having recipe books between, of course, the, well, I'm gonna say, Arab world, you know what I mean, uh, and then uh, Catalan, Sicily, and like France, because these regions were quite, at least south of France, these regions were connected through the Mediterranean Sea, so do you think there is, a, there is an influence there?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and, and you've forgotten to mention even Italy. As you know, the yes. Arabs ruled Sicily for a long time. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so it was actually a, a twin movement. Hmm. Um, there was um, uh, one road into Italy, and then another, of course, through the Iberian Peninsula. Yeah. Andalus, Muslim Spain. Um, so, yes, and, and the there's a couple of things that I can mention in terms of that, that influence. The first is at a very basic level, at a very textual level, um, we have actually a translation of a number of recipes, culinary recipes, uh, that was done in Italy in the 12th, 13th century. And the recipes uh, are... Re- cookery recipes included in an 11th century Arabic pharmacological encyclopedia written by a man, compiled by a man called Ibn Jazla. and so these recipes were translated in Italy into Latin and afterwards even in the 15th century they were translated into German oh wow from that Latin uh, edition, yeah, absolutely Latin translation. I should say, and so it's clear that uh, we don't know. We know the name of the translator, a man called Yambobinus, but we don't really know why he selected those uh, recipes. Uh, but it shows something which is not mentioned enough, which is that there were there were very intensive exchanges between the muslim and christian worlds for a long time the orthodoxy was of a a muslim world that was very much isolated xenophobic and all of that but in fact there was a great deal of mobility and um uh, through trade first and foremost but there were cultural exchanges and so on and so forth and of course in italy you had at the court of sicily court of frederick Uh, who who himself uh, knew Arabic. Uh, We, of course, have the translation movement in Spain, where the uh, ruler took a particular interest in the translation of Arabic works into Latin and after, of course, into into Castilian Spanish. So that's that's one very big... um, I think, piece of evidence and a very convincing one. Unfortunately, we don't really know to what extent these recipes filtered through and what happened to those recipes in Italy. Uh, It may be that Jan Bubinus found part of this text. Also, the selection is quite haphazard. That Pharmacological Encyclopedia, which contains about 2,200 entries on average, depending on the manuscript, And of those entries, because of course it contains all the you know it's an encyclopedia, dictionary of materia medica, so the simples, um, but also culinary recipes, over two hundred in total. And so Yambobinus, many of which actually can be found in some of the cookery collections, the recipe collections. Yambobinus had access to this to this manuscript. And as I said, for whatever reason, chose a number, presumably because those were the ones that interested him. We'll never know. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. And then the other, I think, very important element here that one can mention, and this is not textual, this is in terms of taste and flavor. So if you look at the early collections that we just talked about, the early European collections, the flavours that that you see in the recipes, the ingredients, are very, very similar to those we encounter in Arabic culinary treatises. Um, And this this has caused some debate in the scholarly community because there, there are those who claim that, no, in fact, Um, The European cookery collections, they don't really reflect an Arab culinary tradition, but rather go back to a Roman tradition and even a Visigothic tradition. Um, I'm not part of that school because I don't believe that there's enough corroborative evidence. And a couple of things that I can mention here. One is that if we look at Apicius, for instance, he uses a lot of spices, that's true, but he uses very few spices in comparison with the Arab cookery books. And for instance, 80% of Apicius uh, uh, recipes contain pepper. And there are a few. It's true. He uses things like spike nard and so on. Very, very unusual. Um, but, but nowhere near the uh, quantities and proportions that we find in, in Arab culinary works. The other, I think, significant piece of evidence is, as I said, the the flavors. And I'm thinking here of um, things like the use of rose water.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Uh, the use of things like cloves and cinnamon, yeah. uh, which um, anybody who knows a little bit about the European culinary tradition knows that uh, at least up until the 17th century, um, these were the kinds of spices that were used sometimes in huge quantities um, in on, on the tables of, of the elite. So I, I think that... As somebody also who has tasted uh, both traditions, a medieval Arab would definitely have had um, not a déjà vu, but a uh, (laughs) déjà-gouté impression if they had had something from um, 14th century France or or England, because there would have been very similar flavors um th- that, of course, changed uh, um, much later. But this medieval taste, I mean, the use of kind of, you know, rice pudding, the blanc manger, which is essentially an Arab dish, um, you know, the rice pudding with meat, as um, a muhalabiya. So there, there's, there's quite, I think, a, a, a bit of evidence to point in the direction that the Arab influence Uh, is quite significant on the early European cookery tradition.
0: Wow, this is very interesting. I could talk about that for hours, but um, we're not going to talk about Europe today. Um, (laughs) And interestingly, so you mentioned, of course, that food is linked to pharmacology. And is this also linked to aphrodisiacs? Because in 2014, you published a critical edition and a translation of the Book of Choice, Sexual Stimulants and Sultan's Mixtures which was written by al-Din Ardena Tusi, a Persian philosopher and scientist who died in 1274. Did you choose to go into Arab erotic literature for the same reason that you go into food? Is there a link between the two?
1: Um, yes, yes, there is. Um, there, there is a, a link between the two um, because within islamic uh, medicine uh, sexuality is in the category of the so-called unnaturals the non-naturals they divided the uh the, the system referred to those things that are natural i.e that take place in the body um you know the, the whole humoral system <laughs> um and then there are those elements that they refer to as being unnaturals or non-naturals. And they they played an important part in physical health because food and drink, for instance, are part of those non-naturals. Yeah. Uh, As is, you know, uh, rest and movement, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So it's
0: all the external factors kind of.
1: Exactly, exactly. And food and drink is in that group, but sexuality is also in that group. Um it's, it's under the heading of evacuation, which also includes bathing uh, as well. And so that took me to a very substantial body of literature um, that um, is also something that people are perhaps not aware of. There's a huge number of works that we can put in a category that we can call a very broad category of sexology erotology and erotica so that the last category also contains stories uh that that um uh, were no doubt meant for for titillation but the link between food and, and aphrodisiacs is a very very strong one and many of the medieval cookery books the arabic medieval cookery books uh, contain recipes with um, an aphrodisiac slant because many of the cookery books uh, are written, of course, again, within this humoral system. And so not every book discusses these things to the same degree, but there's always a reference to it. So uh, some of the recipes um, would be there purely for medical reasons. So, you know, this recipe is uh, for those f- who suffer from a cough, for instance, and those recipe books that contain this kind of medical information would almost invariably also contain recipes for or, for aphrodisiac dishes. So it's 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 definitely there. But the book to which you're referring by Dina uh, Tussi Uh, That falls into the the category of erotology in the sense that it gives a number of recipes, and I've also recreated some of those um, recipes and discusses ingredients, um, the aphrodisiac or anaphrodisiac properties of the various uh, simple medicines. And the reason I I chose a Tusi from as I said, quite a long list. We're talking about uh, some 140, 150 works uh, in in that group. Yes, it's an extraordinary tradition. And the reason I chose Tusi is because his work stood out as this great astronomer who also wrote this book, uh, commissioned by the ruler, and um so it it all fits together because as you know back in those days scientists were polymaths uh they were engaged in everything you had somebody who was a physician but uh, think of uh, ibn sina mm-hmm. avicenna for instance a good example uh if you remember his famous statement that of all the sciences that i that i am engaged in you know medicine is the one that it was almost like a, an afterthought uh and so, it do see the fact that an astronomer produced this work um, stuck out to me, and um, and so I, I got hold of the uh, manuscript, well, several manuscripts, and I thought it might be interesting for um, another a broader readership to learn a little bit more about this fascinating literature. Absolutely.
0: Coming back to cooking which is, is why we are here today in 2020 you published uh, the sultan's feast a 15th century egyptian cookbook and it is a critical edition and translation of the culinary treatise titled and i will just give the translation flowers in the garden of elegant food written by ibn mubaraksha uh, who lived in cairo between 1403 and 1458 First thing first. Who was Ibn Mubarak Shah? Uh, was he a chef? Was he who was he? And why did he decide to write a cookbook? Basically,
1: yeah, those are all very good questions. Very little is is actually known about uh, Ibn Mubarak uh, Shah. Um, he's one of those um, minor literary figures of of whom there are many in. Uh, cultural and literary histories not just in Arabic but in in other languages as well you know people who are world famous in their local context but are then completely forgotten for a number of reasons so what we do know is that he was a scholar he was also a poet he was a part of a, a group of poets Um, But more importantly, and there will be a link with the food uh, in a second, more importantly, he was also an anthologist and he compiled a huge anthology of Arabic poetry. And in so doing, we should all be eternally grateful to him because in his collection, some of the uh, poems by other poets Mm -hmm. Particularly Andalusian ones that have been lost since then were preserved thanks to his anthology, his anthology, which uh, is still in manuscript form. It's currently held in Istanbul. But so it's that that's his magnum opus, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, Other than that, uh, there isn't really much to say about him. Uh, Contemporaries refer to the fact that he was a man of great scholarly, great and wide scholarly interests. Uh, But these are things that frankly, we can't really judge because there's not enough in our outputs uh, for us to make any considered judgment on that. When it comes to the second question, uh was was he a chef mm-hmm. no, he wasn't a chef um and then that of course raises the question: why did he write a cookery book? Why did he write a cookbook? Well, we have some uh, idea about that um at a very basic level, I think we can say that it was a um a recipe book intended to be a recipe book of the recipes that uh, he enjoyed eating at home. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) And um, there are some references to support that. So, for instance, he refers to a particular dish which contains some rather expensive ingredients. And and he will say, well, for somebody of of my meager income, I can't really afford this or that ingredient, but you can easily use something else. (laughs) Um, He also refers to um, some of the recipes that were tried out by his female servants. Mm -hmm. So that's one level. The other level, and I go back now to his work as a literary anthologist, I believe that it was also a question of preserving a a heritage, a culinary heritage. And further evidence in that direction is the fact that his cookery book, like so many others, and that's why it's very dangerous to talk about authorship. We should actually be talking about compilership. Yes. He used a number of earlier cookery books, One from uh, Egypt, also from Mamluk Egypt, and another one from Syria. So one from Egypt of the previous century or perhaps even the late 13th and then a Syrian one from the 13th century. And so the type of recipes, sometimes there are recipes that we can call middle class recipes. And it's very interesting, for instance, to note that some of the recipes are simplified versions of those very fancy and opulent recipes that we find in the Arbasid cookery uh, book literature, for instance. Uh, so uh, instead of five different types of meats, we will have one. Uh, there's uh, recipes where there used to be musk or ambergris. Uh, that's left out Mm. so in that sense it gives us a a very interesting snapshot of the development of the culinary tradition it also shows us something very uh, significant which is that in many respects there weren't really that many differences between what the elite was eating and what those lower down the social hierarchy were eating um what i mean by that is i mean of course the the, the tables would have been would have looked very different but it's it's more in terms of the complexity of preparation and the preciousness of the ingredients but it would still be a stew with meat and vegetables and and rice that's very interesting so that's i think what uh, Barak Shah's treatise also shows us so he was a a gourmet let's put it that way a gourmet who was also interested in preserving a culinary heritage and at the same time also recording uh, recipes that he and his family enjoyed that's probably in a nutshell what uh, his book um, conveys
0: it's so interesting that you're mentioning culinary heritage because, of course, when we think about anthologies, we think about mostly uh, poetic anthologies, or uh, or we think about compilations of uh, well scientific texts. Um, but before reading your book, obviously, I never thought about uh, the idea of having anthologies of recipes uh, cook like cooking recipes and the idea that in even in the 15th century there was a movement to protect and 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 um and keep that culinary heritage it never crossed my mind this is so interesting
1: yes it is it's clear that that's that that was the the case and of course the the final big piece in in this puzzle is that his book was one of the last of the uh, Arabic cookery books. Was it? Yeah. So, beyond, there is no extant cookery book uh, between the 16th and 19th centuries. So, it's only in the 19th century that uh, cookery books re-emerge. But, of course, uh whilst they have in common that they reflect the habits of the elite Yeah At that time, of course, the elite were very westernised and so the cookery books essentially contain a lot of French, fancy French dishes Yeah, I imagine so So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a completely different, different story, it's a completely different animal so, Imam Barak Shah is really uh, at the very end of a tradition, and so, which is very unfortunate. But we we don't know, for instance, the effect or when the so-called Colombian Exchange, when that started to have uh, an effect on uh, people's habits. And if you're thinking, well, why why did that happen? Well, it happened for a number of reasons even by the time Ibn Barak Shah was writing, these very opulent courts and rich patrons, uh, that tradition uh, wasn't there anymore. Mm. Uh, the, the, the political situation of, of the Muslim world by that time had changed dramatically. But more importantly, they there was a shift not just in in political power but also in culinary <laughs> and cultural power with of course um, the rise of the ottoman empire exactly that's what i was thinking
0: about uh, maybe exactly the 15 1516 might have changed the the landscape so so deeply that this tradition would have kind of like disappear and that was my next question actually is there obviously we don't have cookery book in Arabic for the 16th century but do we have any in Turkish
1: absolutely and in fact the earliest the earliest Ottoman cookery book is a translation stroke adaptation of a 13th century Abbasid cookery book interesting yeah and so but the Turks of course the Ottoman Turks they uh, greatly expanded uh, the culinary arsenal yes um but yes it was also rooted in in the arabic medieval tradition added of course with turkic elements yes and turkic elements um originally coming from central asia the importance of, of pasta the for instance the stuffing and and that sort of thing um but yes, so it was the it was in Ottoman Turkey that we have a new center, a new court, uh, and of course we're very fortunate that there are uh, a number of very detailed records of the various banquets held by Ottoman sultans and so on. But but that of course is is another story.
0: Yes, absolutely. But that's the great thing with Ottoman Turkey's is the the amount of archives. Um, and going back to Ibn Mubarak Shah you mentioned in your book's introduction that there is only one copy of his uh, book. There is only one manuscript. How did you date this manuscript and how did you approach the doing a critical edition with only one manuscript?
1: Yeah, um, the, the question being, you know, can it still be a critical edition if it's based on one manuscript? I didn't want to ask it, uh, like that, but yes. <laughs> Uh, to some extent of course you could say well yes because most texts require editing uh, of some sort Um, but actually in this case and I, I told you a little bit already about the the genesis and development of the text yes in this case I didn't have another copy of Ibn Mubarak Shah's text but I did have access to the other texts from which he drew much of his material. And I'm thinking here, particularly the earlier Egyptian manual, Kenz Fawaid fawait el-Mawait. And so I had access to um, that text, and that allowed me actually to produce a, an edited version of the manuscript that I had I also had access to a manuscript of the 13th-century Syrian text, uh, which also allowed me to compare and um, uh, produce uh, at least um, some critical content for for those for those recipes. Um, and of course, there's also recipes that I was unable to find in any manuscript. So one presumes that. These were either part of an as yet undiscovered collection, mm-hmm. or that these were perhaps recipes that Ibn Barak Shah himself invented, which is which is also possible. Yeah, we can't yeah. really exclude any of these hypotheses. Absolutely, very interesting. Um, as for your question about dating the manuscript, yes. the, as you know, that that's a very tricky issue. Yes, and. Um, Well, there are a few clues. Uh, It is certain that uh, the text was copied after the death of the author. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Okay. So that's the only thing that's certain. Other than that, it's very difficult uh, to say. Um, There's no other clues. Uh, It's not bound. and, And just last month, I was very fortunate because I worked all this time on an electronic copy. Uh, but last month, I was in Gotha in Germany, and I was very fortunate to actually leaf through um Baraksha's shah's text oh. There's a very emotional uh, moment yeah um but so there's there's no there's no clear indications that would allow us to to date it um it's put in the fifteenth century because that's when the author was alive. But I think if you were to say it was copied in the 16th century or even the 17th, yeah. I think at this stage is difficult to to refute that.
0: Yeah, you you didn't you didn't find anything in the material examination of the manuscript that could have helped with the dating. I assume.
1: No, unfortunately not. <laughs> unfortunately not. Too bad. <laughs>
0: If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite audio platform and give a rating. Add a comment and share on social media to help grow the audience and the community. To support the initiative, buy the host a coffee via the link under the episode. And now, back to the interview. Okay, so I'm coming back now to uh, your book and, well, Ibn Mubarak Shah collection. Um, because obviously I browse through the recipes and there are some ingredients I had no idea existed. Uh, I'm not a great cook. I will say that as a disclaimer, but still, I think I have a, I, I know a little bit and some ingredients really puzzle me such as porridge, water, verjuice and caraway. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that right. Um, How did you... So did you ever face an ingredient you didn't know uh, and uh, you couldn't translate? And how did you finally find out what it was?
1: Yeah. um, Anybody reading and especially translating texts uh, of this type faces this problem. Yeah. Um, And it's, it's, it's often very problematic. In fact, even if you think you know the ingredient things are not always what they seem Um, and this is true for for things for ingredients that you like cinnamon you know cinnamon and cassia uh, today most people know what they are today they're very different but in the middle ages for instance this distinction wasn't always made Mm -hmm. so um you translate what you have in front of you and sometimes actually it could be either one um secondly the terminology yeah. which uh, there's there's often a bewildering confusion of terms that denote the same ingredient the same plant the same herb um on top of that so on top of this kind of terminological uh confusion There's also the uh, element of regional variation. Yes. Uh, As you know, um, Western Arabic used its own terms. um, And still today, uh, you know, this is true, especially actually for ingredients, you know, certain vegetables, fruits, which have different names uh, today still uh, depending on which which Arab uh, country you you find yourself, yeah. So there's there's really a lot to to contend with, and then finally, um, and this is really to put everybody on guard, not to jump to conclusions. Even uh, uh, let's say a plant like celery, the celery of today that we we buy at Sainsbury's isn't necessarily the same as yes. celery that was used in the 11th century. So, you know, already you're starting at a disadvantage if you think about it. <laughs> um, and and then uh, to make things even more interesting or rather depressingly interesting <laughs> uh, is the fact that some plants, of course, have died out. And yeah. the most famous case, of course, is that of sylphion, or in dioscorides and sylphium to the, the the romans it's a kind of fennel plant okay um, uh, in apicius's uh, recipe book it's used quite often uh, but they they loved it so much that they ate it out of existence so so we so wow. when when you have <laughs> when you have an author talking about well this plant looks like this one yeah. uh, and you have no basis of comparison That of course makes things uh, makes things very uh, difficult. Yeah. Fortunately, we have lexicographical works, uh, but these often cause even more confusion uh, than they uh, or cause or raise even more questions than they answer, because descriptions um, can, as you imagine, often be vague, uh, ambiguous, or or just plain wrong. Uh, somebody oh, quotes exactly. Somebody quotes this plant is exactly like this one, simply because so and so said so, but so and so made a spelling mistake, and and the the error is perpetuated. Oh, this is brilliant. Uh, so so it's it's really um, a fascinating journey, um, and I mean it's it's no exaggeration that sometimes I I can be agonizing over a term. Uh, for for a week so Uh,
0: how do you you go past the this this agony how do you finally well I, i would assume there is also a choice to be made at some point like so how do you
1: make that choice and say okay this word means this um with great difficulty and trepidation is the answer but but you're right um how do i proceed well I, I look at um, the relevant literature. And as I said, fortunately, we have pharmacological literature. We have um, agricultural manuals, uh, which also contain some very vital information. Medical works, mm-hmm. uh, another huge source. Um, and then it's uh, a question of taking the one the, and you're absolutely right. At some point, you have to make a choice. And I um, I completely own that choice once I've made it. Uh, the one that to me seems the most likely.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and uh, I will then also give the um, technical name. But often even there, I have to give several because mm. once again, we don't know which variety. Yeah uh was was used yeah um so yes so it's it's really uh, looking for as as many references as one can find and then looking also at the period in which the book was written the region in which it was written so for instance If I'm looking at an Andalusian text, I will look at Andalusian medical works and and pharmacological works. That makes sense. If it's in the Near East, then, of course, it's the old classics, uh, Ibn Sina, Er Errazi, Samarkandi, Ibn Jezla, and so on and so forth. Um, And then, of course, there's also the fact that once you've identified a particular ingredient, Mm -hmm. you don't always know which part of, for instance, the plant they would have used. Of
0: course. Oh, my God. Yeah.
1: So uh, sometimes there's a different name for different bits of the plant. So yeah. for the roots or the leaves. Uh, but I mentioned celery. Celery is a good example. They would never have used the stalks, only the leaves because their celery were, would have been much more bitter. Oh, than,
0: interesting. Oh, so, yeah, of course that makes
1: sense. So it's it's really walking a, a tightrope. Yeah. Um, in terms of, where I've not been able to translate, Um, there's one that springs to mind and that's a citrus fruit. Um, And citrus fruit, I don't know whether you're aware of this, are notoriously difficult to identify because they get easily crossed and they easily transmutate in different varieties. Oh no, I didn't know that! So it's very difficult. and. I'm thinking now of a particular citrus fruit called the zambur, which is mentioned in uh, uh, Andalusian uh, manuals. That uh, is very, very difficult to uh, identify and and I'm not 100% sure. It's probably close to a pomelo. Okay. Interesting.
0: But yeah, there is no way you can know for sure if
1: no i mean uh, fortunately uh, others have researched this very thoroughly mm-hmm. but all you get is uh possible lines of inquiry um but no let's say uh, identification that's 100 percent certain
0: yeah that's so interesting and that actually leads me to a question that i was planning to ask later but i'll ask it now um because you have a website uh, which is eatlikeasultan.com and you have a, an Instagram page which is at medieval underscore arab underscore cooking where you post uh, and you share recreations of medieval recipes. Um, did you experiment, and I assume you did, did you experiment with Ibn Baraksha uh, recipes and did experimentation helped you in translating those words that and those ingredients that you didn't necessarily know
1: Uh, oh oh, yes it uh, not only has it been great fun and um uh, doing this for 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 many years now but it has been very very helpful not so much in terms of the ingredients but in terms of um methodology mm-hmm. and even it, it has helped me understand the recipe and often correct the recipe because uh, and this leads me to probably the biggest problem that faces anybody who wishes to recreate um medieval dishes the lack of measurements
0: yes that uh, that was one of my questions actually yeah how do you recreate this type of recipes and also uh some of the recipes are very short some are very vague there is no measurement so how how <laughs>
1: just how yeah well uh yes and the sometimes there there the the measures are you know a pound and then that we can go into that you know the the use of of uh, the word pound is is rattle mm-hmm. but uh, guess what depending on the time depending on the region these terms could actually refer to different measures. This is a nightmare. So that, that's another, a whole other uh, kettle of fish uh, to stay in our culinary terminology uh, that, that we, we don't really want to start stirring in. <laughs> but uh, the easy answer, the obvious answer is really through trial and error. Mm. Now, one of the things, of course, that you learn as you recreate is you learn to uh, identify the palate. Yes. What would they have liked? Yes. And uh, let's, let's go back. Why is it that they're so vague?
0: Good question, though,
1: yeah. And there's, there's a couple of things that need to be said about that. Well, firstly, the recipes uh, tended to be written for chefs for people cooking, whether it's the servants in some household or whether it's a colleague. And so just as today, if I give you a recipe, I will write out everything. Yeah. Because we're we're not chefs and, you know, you need specific measures. Mm -hmm. However, if two chefs exchange recipes, there are a lot of things that are left out because, for, for instance, when it says make a dough. The chef is supposed to know that you need flour, water, and possibly yeast. Yes. Makes- if you're an if you're a lay person, and it says dough, yeah, but what? Or it says dough using flour uh, and yeast. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to know that the water is missing, but to the chef, that's not a problem. Yes. The other reason, actually, is a, is a much more prosaic one, which is that perhaps the compilers wanted to keep some of the recipe a secret. And so perhaps we can imagine that there was in some cases a reason why the information wasn't specific in order to retain uh, some control, if you will, over the recipe. So I'm going to write out the recipe, but I'm not going to give too much (laughs) because I still want to be the person that they come to if they want to make a certain recipe. It's just a thought, but it makes sense to me in a way. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: This book was, uh, was written for chefs or people cooking, which makes complete sense. Given the fact that today we have only one copy of this text in existence, what was the diffusion of this book how how this recipe how was
1: it disseminated?
0: Yes, thank you. I was looking for that words. Thank you. How was it
1: disseminated <laughs> um well that that's an excellent question um some some cookery books uh, were copied multiple times, and multiple manuscripts are still in existence. yes, but not this one that's one. no and and many many uh, are only available in one in one copy, yeah. Now, the reason for that is, again, a very obvious one. Uh, these would have been used in a kitchen and a kitchen environment, of course, is not conducive to preservation of manuscripts.
0: Makes sense, yeah, That's absolutely. One thing.
1: That's one thing. The other thing is that um, I don't believe that necessarily the entire collections would have circulated hmm. and that perhaps there would have been abridgments Say, for instance, the chapter on sweets would have been circulated at need. And we have a little bit of evidence of, uh, in that direction. Uh, in the 19th century, for instance, um, the Moroccan Sultan sent some of his cooks, who happened to be all female, incidentally, female slaves, to uh, Tetuan uh, in order to, to learn how to make certain sweets. So, you can imagine, for instance, that those ladies would come back with the, a chapter on sweets, not necessarily the entire text. That makes sense. So, one, the environment in which the manuscripts were used, and two, the fact that manuscripts perhaps were not intended to be disseminated in their entirety all the time.
0: Yeah, that makes complete sense, actually. Yeah.
1: And the third reason is that it would not have been considered worthy of preservation. Just as today, you know, somebody has a recipe book, okay, you know, um, when I die, my recipe book, you know, it, mm-hmm. it dies with me. Um, it wasn't deemed important enough, although there are some exceptions, because in the case of the uh, 13th century uh, cookery book from Baghdad, yeah. Uh, which is also the only one of which we have an autograph manuscript, so written by the author himself. Wow. Uh, that particular text was translated, it's the one that was translated and adapted by that Ottoman chef. Yes. And a, uh, a very elaborate, very expensive copy of that Arabic text was made for an Ottoman sultan.
0: Oh, fascinating.
1: Yeah. And you can see that text in the British library. So the one that was gifted to the Ottoman Sultan is in the British Library today with kind of gold, gold titles and, and all the rest of it. So it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful copy.
0: Yeah, that's ve- that's very, very interesting. So, yeah, so there was some some recipes uh, were trans- transmitted and some were not. So it depends when it was written. It's very, it's very intriguing, all this.
1: Another thing that I'd like to add here Mm -hmm. is the fact that, and I go back to my earlier point of mobility and contact, is that these texts clearly traveled from the Western uh, to the Eastern Muslim world and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And we have, for instance, one of the Andalusian texts, which uh, was copied in the late 18th century in Syria. Oh wow! Yeah. So they, they, they. Once again, uh, when people travel, they take their food with them. Yes. Uh, just as, for instance, we find in uh, 16th century Rome, we find a lot of Andalusian dishes, including couscous. <laughs> Uh, who and and uh, why, uh, yeah. uh, you know, who brought that there? Well, there were, of course, these Andalusian Jews of course. Uh, who, after the Reconquista, found their way to Italy. And, of course, anybody who travels, anybody who leaves uh, their native land, of course, they travel with their food and mm-hmm. food becomes part of of remembering. Yeah. Again, it's that issue of preservation of heritage and so on and so forth.
0: Fascinating. So interesting. Um, you wrote in the preface of your book, and I quote, it is difficult to imagine anything more profoundly cultural and social than food. End quote. What do these recipes put together by Ibn Mubarak Shah tell us about 15th century Cairo cultural
1: landscape? Well, that's a, a, a tricky one. <laughs> um Cairo in the 15th century wasn't a happy place. It was a, a society that um, was soon to change dramatically. Mm-hmm. It was going to become part of the Ottoman Empire not long after Ibn Mubarak Shah's death. Yeah. Uh, what the food tells us, or rather what the book tells us, what the recipes tell us, a couple of things that are quite interesting. One is, as I said, the existence of this this kind of middle class, yes, um, you know the middle class eating habits. For instance, I think that there's there's plenty of evidence there. Uh, it also tells us about the fact that um, how people used and 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 got ingredients, and it's very interesting. For instance, that in in his book he mentions, well, you know, it, for this ingredient. You can either make it at home or, um, you know, just go to the market, just go to the souk, and buy it there. And as you know, there was a very vibrant and, uh, and, and prolific street food culture. Yes. So that's that's another thing. And um, finally, in terms of a changing world, Ibn Shah's text contains quite a few recipes that betray a Turkish influence. Mm,
0: already at that time.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, and that we can already find in in the manual from the 14th century or, or late 13th uh, which already also contains some some uh, uh, Turkish influence that makes sense. in fact about Aksha for instance will mention a particular recipe on how to cook a particular dish and then say and if you're cooking this for a Turk, then don't forget to add garlic. <laughs> Fair enough that's very specific but okay
0: um. I'm coming back to you and uh, obviously your experimentations and well you, you're doing more than experimenting at this point you're know, like really recreating recipes uh, I find that very very interesting um, because I'm quite interested in the evolution of taste and it's obviously a big topic in art history but it's big topic everywhere so are there any flavors that you recreated um that really that were so far away of a modern palate that really your 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 taste buds didn't understand where where what was happening
1: That's a, an interesting one mainly because I'm now so used to the medieval palate that um that doesn't happen much anymore but I would say that um the use there's a couple of things that I, I've experienced more or less in the way that, that you've just described. And and the first thing would be the the use of vinegar.
0: Yeah. Looking at your your recipes, everything seems pickled.
1: Yeah. Uh, that, well, there's a lot of pickling going on, but there's there's vinegar is is used in so many recipes, and uh, that was something that that was quite difficult. But <laughs> and this is a good example of what, something we talked about earlier. Um, there's a very famous dish called sigberge which is a vinegar stew, a vinegar beef stew, and. Um, when i first made it i i honestly didn't really like it it was just too sour for me yeah even in the name it, yeah. yeah 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 but once again it's about projecting your own preference and um using modern ingredients yeah because of course you know we use normal vinegar yeah on the other hand you find that uh, they made a lot of different types of vinegar. Of course. And so not that long ago, I recreated the SIGBAGE, this time with another kind of vinegar, also medieval vinegar. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, it still had a slightly sour edge to it, but it was absolutely delicious. Oh.
0: Did you make your own vinegar then?
1: Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. you <yeah. laughs> Stupid question. <laughs> um, the other things in terms of the spices that really, I think, um, are quite disconcerting are things like spikenard, uh, asafoetida. Um, those are kind of very pungent, very strong spices um, that take some getting used to. They're very nice, very pleasant. Oh,
0: yeah. Okay. Sorry. I, I went because I'm, I'm not British. Uh, so I went on on a um, dictionary to translate what spike now is, and um, that actually didn't help. <laughs> so I don't know what that is.
1: Yes, it's it's uh, it's not used very much at all, <laughs> um, and and I think some people might also be somewhat taken aback by the use of sumac, yeah. uh, which recently that's kind of making a comeback. And I think that's another thing for many people today who who are exposed to many exotic and foreign cuisines. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the alienation will be much reduced. Yeah. In comparison with, say, people from 50 years ago, I think if they were to eat one of these medieval dishes uh, that would be so alien and 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 the flavours would be <laughs> so unusual yeah. that it, it might, in fact, be a little bit too much for the for the taste buds to to handle, <laughs> and of course the other thing that uh, the palate needs to get used to are the quantities of these spices. Yeah. I mean, when they say a handful, I mean, it's a handful. Talking about, because we didn't finish our measurements thing, so oh. it really is trial and error and carefully yeah. recording how much is used in each iteration. Um, and, of course, the final block in, in the, the the house is these recipes. We have no indication for how many people they were made.
0: Oh, that is such a good point, yeah
1: that's something that nobody seems to mention but uh one, once you start cooking this you you think because they will um they will have made a whole lamb and of course the, it's huge quantities. so one wonders whether these huge quantities which is considered to be a hallmark of this ki- kind of cuisine mm-hmm. whether these huge quantities cannot in part at least be ascribed to the sheer volume of the other ingredients yeah I don't know, but but it's it's something that I think needs to be taken into account a little bit more than it has been. No, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's not specified any in any
0: recipe if it's like for four people or eighteen. So no. yeah, no, that's <laughs> that is a really good point. Um, for someone who would get their hands on your book. Uh, the Sultan's feast, and uh, would want to try uh, recreating a recipe. Where would they start? which which um which
1: recipe would they recreate? Um I think um, or I would recommend mm-hmm. one of the stews. and there, there are many, of course. Yes. one of the stews, possibly a fruity one. Uh, one made with uh, lemons or uh, uh, oranges, sour oranges. Um, not only because they constitute the majority; stews constitute a majority of the dishes, mm-hmm. but also because they will contain all of the or most of the ingredients that give you a very good idea of the of the medieval palate. So, and finally, a very practical point: uh, these are also. Um, quite easy to do. Yes. Relatively easy to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there is one here. I have the, the book in front of me. Uh, Lemons uh, for two chickens. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to read the recipe, but for people, it's page 29 of the book. So <laughs> go check this one. And uh, yeah, there is some rose water in there, some mint, some. Uh, yeah, it, it, it really sounds amazing actually. Might try it. I'll let you know how that goes, when my kitchen explodes. Um, (laughs) One question that I must ask, because I am an art historian, and this is the Art Informant podcast, so I I have to ask at least one question about art history and iconography. on your website, you use uh, illustration from the Kitab al uh, which is Arabic translation of uh, Galen. Galen, how do you say it in English? Galen, Galen. Galen, thank you. Uh, and you use especially the the oldest copy, which is uh, from the extreme end of the 12th century. Uh, and you use other iconography as well, but the question is: Did iconography in Arab and Persian painting help your understanding of cooking practices, and especially regarding use of ingredients or cooking techniques?
1: Um, well, yes, I'm, I'm a I'm a huge fan and collector of of manuscripts, and uh, besides the 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 one that you mentioned, um, one of my favorites is also one of the manuscripts. One of the many copies of El Qazwini's Wonders of Creation, Aja Ibn Marlukat. Yes. Now, as you may know, unfortunately, none of the Arabic uh, culinary works contains any illustration.
0: Yeah, I would assume. I would assume.
1: Um, in fact, very few cookery books uh, contain them, and um, you're right. We have to go further east for that. Yeah. Um, to Persia and of course India, Uh Uh, the nicest ones in terms of cooking at least are found of course in the uh, Nirmatname, which is from the uh, 15th century Yeah, and it contains wonderful miniatures Uh, there's pictures for instance of samosas uh, including one stuffed with aubergine, rather unusual Um, there's also Uh, like in the Arabic cookery books, there's also information on which foods to eat, uh, when, which foods to mix, and which not to mix. Um, Now, other um, Persian uh, texts um, contain scenes that involve food Mm -hmm. and uh, cooking, but to be honest, um, I've not really been able to use those in terms of gaining an insight into how the arabic recipes uh would have been made it is it is interesting nonetheless uh, um in terms of preparation for instance um the, the kinds of of, of fires mm-hmm. that they use mm-hmm. um so to get an idea so it uh, um, pictorial representation of what is described in the Arabic uh, cookery books. But in terms of the the dishes and, of course, food um, uh, and the way it's presented, there's also the the manuscript also held in um, the uh, French National Library of the Maqamat.
0: Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, which has wonderful illustrations, and often there's also food that's being served. But the 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 illustrations, since food isn't the focus, except in the Nami, of course, the yeah. food is yeah. the focus. But they're very small, and all you can see is things that look like cakes and so on. So it's not really, I have to say, um, these illustrations haven't haven't been useful in yes. terms of the recreation of the of, of the dishes that makes sense yeah they're not uh,
0: they're not um, specific enough for you to eat no, them no, as, no. Uh, as as a sauce really that makes sense and so you identified a new recipe collection how did you identify this collection
1: yes that that was a, a very exciting. Moment, um, I identified this this collection uh, while I was doing research uh, for for the uh, the book we've we've been talking about, and it's um, it's a text that's called Tasanif uh, el which translates as categories of foods, um, and it's part of a collection that's held at the Wellcome Library in London. Um, It's uh, about 60, in fact, 64 to be exact, folios. And so I was at first very surprised that it hadn't previously been identified as a culinary treatise. Um, It's part of a collection that also includes a work on on simple medicines uh, by uh, an Andalusian author called Abul Salt, who is not, however, the author of the cookbook. And I think that's the reason it may have eluded detection since the beginning of the book is uh, very much that of a a pharmacological work, a pharmacopoeia. And it starts with a description of simple drugs and their properties and and so on. And it's only after you get through that, that the text then clearly becomes a a recipe uh, collection. And the reason I suspected that there might be recipes in that same collection was one, the title, but more importantly, it was related to the work that I've been doing on that 11th century pharmacological encyclopedia that I mentioned earlier by Ibn Jazla, And which, as I said, also contains a lot of culinary recipes. Now, I've completed the edition of the text and yes. um, in draft, about three quarters of the translation is done.
0: Oh, That's exciting.
1: Now, this is a very intriguing text. Now, the origin of the text is unknown. Uh, It's undated, of course. Of course. Uh, It's anonymous, of course. Of course. And in the catalogue that was uh, done in, I believe, the 60s by uh, Iskander, is tentatively dated to the 18th century. Oh, wow. that's 18th century. That's quite late. That's quite late. Yeah. Now... There's nothing really to suggest that that is the case. Yeah. Uh, But the text itself is definitely earlier, and I'll try to explain why. Incidentally, uh, there's uh, about uh, six other uh, works in that collection. So there's a simple uh, drugs. uh, There's also a little text on um, herbs used against warts. There's a little text on the colors of foodstuffs Um, there's um, um, uh, a little text on uh, types of food and their harmful qualities you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. now the only factual clue is that the manuscript was produced must have been produced in the islamic west because it's written in the mahribi script yeah okay um, however, in in the Sultan's Feast, I tentatively put it in the 13th century, but I, I am now convinced that it is actually much older. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason for that is based on my comparison of the recipes with those of the existing Arab culinary works. And so, there's a commonality with other early manuals. In fact it has a lot in common with the earliest Abbasid collections. Interesting. Um, and this is true in the types of recipes, which after the 13th century, th- 13th century we no longer encounter. Mm-hmm. And there's also linguistic evidence. For instance, the high incidence of uh, Persian borrowings. So, uh, in fact, I think that this work, should be dated to prior the earliest Habasid collection, which has been put in the 10th century. So this one, I think, goes back even earlier and may constitute part of the evidence of what I believe is the missing link in the Arabic culinary tradition. The missing link, in in my view, is that of pharmacology. And I think that a lot of recipes actually were pharmacological to begin with and then were written down as recipes or were primarily at first written down for that reason. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards expanded into, let's say, recipe collections with the addition of literary features, poetry and so on in some cases. Um, But so this work is, is... definitely closer to the earliest abbasid tradition yeah and in that sense also closer to the persian tradition which yeah. as you know is also a, a very important influence on yes the, on arab uh, uh, cuisine yeah but unfortunately we don't have any recipe collections mm-hmm. but but there there is of course uh, uh, quite a lot of circumstantial evidence but so this work is closer to the original, to the early Abbasid tradition than it is to later culinary books.
0: This is fascinating. This is huge.
1: Um, yes, in, indeed, and the uh, it's also interesting that it's very neatly structured. Yeah. So it has about sixteen or seventeen chapters, and uh, very closely related to. The divisions that we find in some of the cookery books, it also starts with uh, the things that a cook needs to know, which is a classic in, in many cookery books. We have this as a first chapter, mm-hmm. followed by bread, another, another kind of typical uh, second chapter or, or first real chapter in the cookery books. And then it moves on to meat. There's a, a separate chapter on condiments. Yeah. Uh, separate chapters on various related dishes, um, on types of stews, um, uh, sweets. Also a separate um, a separate chapter, and then we have uh, several chapters devoted to various types of beverages. So it's it's a it's a very well structured uh, cookery book what I said about it being closer to the original, to the early Habasid Mm -hmm. tradition. To me, of course, there is very little doubt that this particular collection was originally composed in the East and then copied and made its way to the Islamic West where it was copied. This This in and of itself is also interesting and we have plenty of evidence that such exchanges took place. Because El Andalus, of course, in Muslim Spain, mm-hmm. uh, rulers were very much enamored with the East, which was seen as a center of sophistication.
0: Well, you'll have to come back on the podcast then uh, when this is published. We'll have to talk about with that. With
1: pleasure, with pleasure. <laughs>
0: um, okay. Finally, what other project are you currently working on? Uh, what can we expect from you in, well, let's say 2023, for instance? Um
1: well um there's a, a translation of uh, of an andalusian or tinezzo andalusian uh, book that's going to come out in in the new year ah um and then of course the um categories of food mm-hmm. that we discussed yes. um the edition and translation of that and then also i uh, hoping to finish that uh, in 2023, I don't know whether that will be possible but a book of medieval recipes for the modern cook. So with with all of the detailed recipes that were used for the recreations and so that would allow people to experiment with these wonderful recipes at home and so they would be drawn from across all of the uh, medieval Arabic cookery books. So kind of a coffee table book, uh, including uh, a selection of of recipes from all of the cookery books. Uh, so uh, over a period of, of uh, six centuries, almost.
0: That is amazing. I can't wait. I genuinely can't wait. I will definitely get that book and uh, try my luck with, uh, <laughs> with Arab cooking. This is amazing. Hopefully you will come back for a part two. On this podcast, when that book uh, comes out and we can talk about the sixth century of Arab cooking, this is generally exciting.
1: Yeah, and and so obviously that's a work in progress yes. because it's is so you can you can follow the the recipes on on both the Instagram and the uh, the blog, um, and so it's it's really something that uh, is organic, um, but um, you know. Uh, if we put the blog and the uh, Instagram account together, um, there's probably already something like well over 200 dishes or 200 recipes that have been recreated from, and not just not just dishes, but also beverages, um, yeah, uh, pickled condiments, uh, even even uh, bread and um, uh, incense uh even medieval incense oh. uh, yes, we have uh, also recreated that Wow,
0: yeah, i uh, obviously I checked your website, but I didn't see the incense. That's very interesting. For the audience, of course, I will put all the links below the episode. um okay, hardest question for last. if you had to pick only one, what would be your favorite dish from 15th century Egypt?
1: Well, can I cheat just a little bit and take one main course and one (laughs) sweet? Yes, you can. Um, For the main course, I would say um, the multi-fruit chicken stew. Yeah. It's a chicken stew that's made with uh, pomegranate with quince and apple. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I greatly uh, uh, enjoy that. And I have to say, over over the years, there have been very few disasters. (laughs) There have been one or two that are so bad uh, that I I wouldn't wish them on on anybody. Uh, But on the whole, uh, it's it's all worked out very well indeed and very, very tasty. Um, And then for the sweet, it must be the um what i called uh, uh, on the blog the uh, honeyed marzipan donuts known as the qahiriya and uh, so it's it's a, a ring shaped uh, donuts and uh, then they're deep fried and dipped in honey oh, wow. and then uh, to to cap it all off uh, sprinkled with musk Oh. rose water and pounded pistachios
0: wow that sounds amazing
1: <laughs> it is it is that's the the kind of thing that uh, if you're not careful you might have to seek medical advice yeah. after making it yeah. because you'll just try to eat all of them
0: <laughs> but pretty much you eat one and you're never <laughs> hungry again after that in your life yes, exactly <laughs> amazing Danielle, thank you so much for coming today on the episode of the art informant i had such a great time uh, learning about uh, arab cooking uh, translations of medieval text and obviously all the recipes that you've been recreating through the years i'm not going to lie i'm a bit hungry right now but it was really worth it so thank you so much
1: my pleasure my pleasure <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to The Art Informant. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite audio platform, add a rating and share around you to grow the community. Do not forget to follow The Art Informant on Instagram to receive all the podcast updates and I will see you in the next episode.